0: I think it's really important we don't forget the lessons of the last two, three years, but we actually really take the opportunity as part of the new commitments to the biodiversity crisis, to the climate crisis, to really link that to a health crisis. And that's really, really important that we have access to nature and the value of nature as one of our key strategies to keep people safe, keep people healthy.
1: Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. You just heard James Hardcastle, Associate Director of the International Union for Conservation of Nature, elaborate on the significance of the worldwide movement known as 30 by 30, where governments designate 30% of Earth's land and water as protected areas by 2030. ESRI's David Gadsden investigates how science and technology are helping actualize the most vital priorities of planetary conservation. Hello, James, and welcome to the ESRI and the Science Aware podcast. Hello, David. Yeah,
0: thanks very much for inviting me. I'm very excited to join and to share some insights with all your listeners.
1: Could you tell us about your work as the head of the Protected and Conserved Areas team? What's the mission and focus of of that part of the organization?
0: We have one commission, expert commission, called the World Commission on Protected Areas. It numbers uh, two and a half thousand individual experts who work on a daily basis on issues of protected area management, protected areas conservation, legal and regulatory, the whole the whole range of skills and practices that go into protected areas. So I have that commission um to engage with and to help focus their work, to help you kind know, of support. Um, and then I have a team uh, of about 30 experts. We're from all over the planet. We're based everywhere. And our team is constantly on the hub of dialogue in different countries and different regions about the latest and greatest on protected and conserved areas. How can we make them more effective? How can we make them more equitable? How can we advise and guide governments on different standards that they can use? How can we inform policies? How can we help channel resources and funding? How can we really reach the people, the men and women who work at the coalface of nature conservation, you know, the park rangers, the people living in local communities? We have a mandate to engage with our indigenous peoples Uh, organizations and their representatives and to really support their voice and their role and their rights, the the vital work that they do uh, in very important places on the planet to effectively manage their resources, uh, determine future of conservation, a future that that is natural and cultural and whole and supports their livelihoods in some of these very, very special places in the world.
1: So James, you have a really unique global view of this entire concept of protected areas and and conserved and managed areas. What are some of the trends? What do you see emerging as um, correcting old practices or exploring more sustainable or equitable ways to keep these places safe?
0: Yeah, I think there's there's, there's an idea that protected areas are kind of new I mean, by new, I mean, you know, 150 years old since uh, the U.S. was the first country to formally have state designated protected areas. And this is not actually the case that areas have been uh, designated for nature conservation, for protection, for managing resources since time immemorial. You know, we have records from. Uh, ancient Mongolia, you know, pre-B.C. that they had, you know, reserves that were desi- de- designated for, you know, horse rearing, for hunting, you know, all the way across Europe. The Roman Empire they set aside areas for nature conservation in Lebanon. You know, the the, the focus of Lebanon on the flag, the image is the cedar tree. You know, there's directives from Emperor Hadrian on protecting uh, the Shuf Mountain area for cedar conservation, cedar replanting, because it was a crucial resource for the Romans for their shipbuilding. And right now through to today, the Cedar Reserve in Lebanon is one of the best protected areas in the world. It's got 2000 years of history, but somehow we get fixated on on the national park and the model that is is kind of state-led conservation. And that's really dominated the 20th century for better or worse. Um, That's been the model that many countries have adopted. However, there's many other ways to protect nature, to establish areas for nature conservation, for wildlife protection, uh, habitat conservation, ecosystem re- restoration—the whole range of different uh, services and interests that these areas can support.
1: So then, what are some of the examples of how IUCN and the Protected and Conserved Areas team is working to advance uh, effective management of of conservation areas?
0: The methodologies and the thinking about how do you how do you assess effectiveness has really evolved and so there's now many protected areas many governments have a methodology to look at their protected areas and look at what their objectives are so what are we conserving here we have a protected area for forest this one's in wetland so what are the key things that we're preserving is it is it wildlife is it is it the flow of the river is it for clean air is it for you know harvesting a local product what is it and is that working is that actually being managed towards that objective and so this was really an evolution and many governments adopted uh, different, different methodologies, different tools, and began assessing the effectiveness. Change began to change the thinking that we need to look at the effectiveness of protected and conserved areas. And we can't just establish them and throw some ranges in, pay them a little bit and expect things to be to be great. It's really hard work. It's complex. And it takes a lot of time. The solutions are iterative. You need to learn by doing. You need to try something. If it works, great, carry on. If it doesn't, well, OK, let's try something different. So this, this thinking about effectiveness and, and about how it could be advanced uh, is something that IUCN had been working on for, for about 20 years. When I joined the organization, we had, a, we had an idea, and that was exactly to set the standard and to set a standard that's really simple. And it just describes in a few, a few words, a few principles, a few phrases, what do we mean by effectiveness? What, what is an effective protected area? What does it look like? And so we came up with a few principles, and we expanded those, and then we added a few criteria under those principles. And everyone said, "Yeah, that looks pretty good." So we tested it. We worked in eight countries to pilot it, and we took it down to the site level. We went with protected area managers and said, "Look, this is this is what we think effectiveness looks like. What do you what do you reckon?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, it looks pretty good." And we said, "Why don't you test yourself against it?" And so they did, and we came up with a very novel a uh, verification scheme using the standards to help diagnose what needs to happen, where you're doing a good job. Like, yeah, you're doing great. Your your governance is fantastic. Your management is quite effective. You have enough resources, but you you can't, you're not monitoring your key values or you know your design, your area is too small. You need to engage with this this part or these partners. So we came up with a, um, a, a model standard that was accessible. It could be translated into different languages. It could be adapted just below the criteria. So, okay, how would how would this look like in your country? Well, we, we have this law, we have this kind of cultural practice, we have this designation. So, okay, let's factor that in. And so the standard can be globally consistent, but it can be adapted to different countries and worked in their language. So this, this has begun to take off. Um, we call it the uh, green list standard because the standard itself describes effective protected areas and conserved areas and any type of area-based conservation. But the idea is that if you can demonstrate that you meet the standard, our organization, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, will add you to a list. And that list is a positive list. We will recognize your success and we will give you profile and we'll say, hey guys, you are doing a great job. Your protected area, your national park, your community conserved area, is delivering the conservation that you expect it to deliver. And that's based on your hard work and your efforts. Keep it up. And we will be there with you to help you keep it up. And all our members, all our partners are beholden to try and help these sites to meet that standard. But the excellence comes in in achieving that across all of the different components of the Green List standard. So right now we are proposing that uh, this standard or a version of the standard is adopted by more and more countries and it becomes integrated into their planning, into their policies, and into their framing of effective area-based conservation to help them meet their commitments to the, the new global targets, to the United Nations Biodiversity uh, Conservation Framework, and that we can then help uh, in a very, very simple way with a standard that is, that is globally consistent, that can be adapted locally. We can help everyone improve and make incremental step-by-step progress towards you know, achieving the grades that they like and being recognized for having successful area-based conservation units in their country.
1: How inclusive is the green list? You you mentioned the incredibly complex challenges facing many protected area managers and management organizations. But how does the green list as a standard help illuminate different areas that, that are in need of improvement?
0: It can be adapted to the context of different countries so that we are we're globally consistent in what a, an, an effective protected area looks like. So you have good governance, you have excellent design, you have good planning, you have effective management and operations, and you can show conservation results. So those are kind of the main ingredients. But under that, there's a lot of context, there's a lot of uh, nuance that that can be adapted. So it's globally consistent, but locally appropriate, which makes it inclusive. And the idea that... Um, you know, for example, we work a lot with uh, Vietnam and uh, Vietnam's first national park is 60 years old this this year. And they they took the U.S. model and they established a network of national parks and nature reserves, a formal ranger service, you know, the whole the whole the whole structure there. But they always feel that they're not they're not able. We're not really good enough. We don't have enough to invest. We're always one step behind. There's this kind of lack of confidence almost. But when we brought our standard to Vietnam and we adapted it, it's the same, it's consistent with the same standard we would use in California, or would use in France, or we'd use in um United Arab Emirates or whichever other, other country that we're working, it's the same standard. But in Vietnam, they were then able to see: actually, we're doing pretty well. And they put forward a few sites, they put forward five protected areas as a test. And within 12 months, one of their nature reserves, the Van Long Nature Reserve, had not only achieved our standard, but it actually really, really gone an extra level. Um, it's it's called Van Long Nature Reserve, and it's near Hanoi. It's near the national capital. And the nature reserve has, since its designation, it's worked with the local community. They have economic uh, engagement with people on tour boats. They have local rangers, you know, from the community. They have an incentives. Uh, they have they have many programs that really support community engagement and share the governance of the area, the wetland and the mountains with, with local people. There is one of the world's rarest primate species. It's called the Delacour Langer. It's a beautiful leaf monkey with long kind of tail and it has these white pants on. So it's kind of quite cool. It's this white pant monkey is the other word for it, no? But it's Delacour Langer. And the population of these langers right next to highway one in Vietnam, it was an isolated population it went from about 30 to 40 individuals when it was designated 20 years ago now there's more than 300 350 400 and they're actually now a source population they've reintroduced uh, some of these languages into two other areas nearby the species as you know that's a thousand percent increase in 20 years that is a conservation success and now others in vietnam the directors of some other parks say hey how come that little nature reserve has got this IUCN recognition? We want that. We're doing a great job too. Can we can we join this green list? Can we have a look? Can we use the standard? How could we, can you help us reach the, the target? So now we have, um, I think, 15 national parks now in Vietnam that are signed up. And this is the same in other countries. So it's really stimulate The focus on what works, the focus on rewarding good behavior, rewarding good investment, rewarding good policies, and rewarding political will is is really powerful and it and it cascades so we're seeing an uptake uh, in different countries where once we establish once one or two sites start using it then you have this groundswell and there's this kind of peer engagement it's something people can connect with when you can see one of your peers doing something and doing it well and getting recognized you say hey i could i want that i can do that as well
1: James a two part question how are green list candidate sites assessed uh, for consideration and then let's say they achieve the standard how are those sites monitored to to verify that that level of management has continued
0: yeah that's an excellent pair of questions i think that what's really important is that um, you know we, we don't just give a recognition and give a certificate as a one-off i want to give them a certificate and say hey you're great you know well done you've done great conservation and they're like right okay uh, actually, we're not going to we're not going to protect the tigers anymore. We're going to go do something else. Let's open it up for a theme park and keep our certificate. No way. So we, we have to build in a, a means that you know we can give the recognition, we can promote success, but we can we can keep the motivation to maintain those standards. And so we have a system whereby after five years there's a quick re-evaluation, and if nothing's changed, okay, you keep your certificate. Everything's great. But we'd also put a couple of conditions. We'd also say, well, you we can't just keep it the same. We wanna see continuous improvement. So we can, we can say, you know, how about um, show us how you're improving gender equity in your park. So we can put a couple of conditions. We change the standard over time, make it a little bit tighter. So to encourage sites that are already on the list to keep improving. So on the, on the fifth year, there's a reevaluation. And if everything's good, it's good. You keep your certificate, fantastic, well done, more recognition, more promotion, it's great. But we also have a system of uh, triggers and alerts. The triggers could be a change in policy, a change in leadership. Often in protecting conserved areas, it, it really is individuals that make a difference. It could be a change in administration. You know, This could, this could raise an, an alarm, say, hold on a minute, your new director actually isn't in place yet. It's been two years, you have no leadership. That would trigger a review of the green list status, for example. It could be a natural disaster, forest fire or mass coral bleaching, or it could be a, you know, a mine is opened in the, you know, it could be something like that. That would trigger a review. We have experts in each country who help us with the evaluation. So with our network, I mentioned IUCN has 15,000 experts, volunteer professional experts. We work with experts in protected and conserved areas in each country, and we accredit them as the evaluators, and we provide an assurance training and an assurance provider checks that everything in the green list process is is done according to the rulebook. It's done according to the, you know, to the the process that we outlined for the green list and, and the standard and how it's used. Or it could be somebody in the community or some stakeholder raises uh, an alert. So, for example, if you're a researcher with a university, you go there with the team and you discover that uh, you know there's some illegal gold mining that nobody had mentioned before. You can you can raise that confidentially with IUCN. And we would then uh, trigger uh, a review to kind of just see if that is if there's any basis to that claim and if that affects the status of the site uh, for its you know for its recognition on the green list. So this system of alerts gives people living in and around the area, it gives stakeholders, it gives others a voice, and it makes the area accountable. If you're on the green list, you are accountable to your constituents to make sure you maintain those standards. Otherwise they can put their hand up and say, "Hey, hey guys." We don't think this protected area is performing up to the standards that you are recognizing it for. And we've had three or four cases already with our green list where these alerts have been raised and we've investigated. We've actually prevented uh, particular actions or policies or disturbances or infrastructure developments. So the green list is actually having a disincentive for uh, actors to kind of mess with the protected areas or kind of downgrade them or or, uh, conduct negative activities. So that, that's quite powerful. So in, in some ways, the, the green list and the evaluation is uh, it's bringing more accountability, it's bringing more visibility. And our role as an international organization that is known for our standards, our independence, our members, the expertise, you know, we have a crucial role in providing that independent evaluation, that independent verification that yes, you're doing a good job or that no, there's an issue that needs addressing here. It's positive, it's optimistic. And so we can turn... Over time, if more and more countries adopt standards and adopt this approach, we can start to turn around that 75 percent of the world's protected and conserved areas that are not managed effectively. Our aim is to really get three quarters of the world's protected areas using the standard and showing improvement to really encourage people to use it, to understand it, to apply it in their daily work and really get that recognition, get people mobilized, get the support that uh, men and women need to do their work on the ground.
1: The importance of conserving biodiversity and restoring nature appears to be increasing in global awareness and increasingly mainstream. Why do you think that's the case in the context of other pressing issues?
0: Well, I think we have to thank our younger generations. I think we have to thank the digital era that we live in. Information travels fast. And even though, as we all know, everywhere, you know, you can't necessarily trust all the information you're receiving. I think that there's an overwhelming groundswell of, of information about the importance of the environment. And I think the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis are you know, gaining traction in terms of, of what young people are thinking about. And, and they're becoming more active. And I think that that's also filtering up. Um, you can see the change in government positions to climate change. Business are getting on board as well. And, it, and it's there is a groundswell. There needs to be much, much, much more. But I think that you cannot take away the health of our environment, the health of ecosystems. The state of our natural world underpins our own health, happiness, development, and well-being. And the recent pandemic that we're now nearly out of, is a really good example of of where that rub that friction the degradation of natural ecosystems and the kind of the the overspill of human interaction with wildlife has created an increasing risk of zoonotic disease transfer so this is you know disease coming from wildlife to domestic animals to people and you know the risk of of pandemics is really really high this i think has uh helped raise awareness as well of the need for better wildlife protection the need for protecting conserved areas the need for a healthy environment so just from that side i think from the other side is all those people around the world who were under lockdown restricted movements that the the need for green spaces for fresh air for uh, trees beyond on the beach just to get out into nature was really Uh, really pressing. And I think people felt it hard. And now that uh, people are starting to come out, I think there's a higher appreciation of the value of these green spaces. And we as an organization are trying to really promote the role of protected and conserved areas in supporting people's health, uh, the role in protected and conserved areas in being kind of the front line of detection of new events, and having the capacities in these places are often very remote, very wild. You have a veterinary surgeon, you have rangers monitoring wildlife, you have the ability to monitor changes in the landscape, changes in wildlife, changes that, that may occur that could be a risk for another spillover event or another pandemic. So I think it's really important we don't forget the lessons of the last two, three years, but we actually really take the opportunity as part of this whole 30 by 30 the part of the new commitments to the biodiversity crisis, to the climate crisis, to really link that to a health crisis. And that's mental health, spiritual health, physical health, really, really important that we have access to nature and the value of nature as one of our key strategies to keep people safe, keep people healthy.
1: James, this has been an incredible education. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. And thanks to James Hardcastle for giving powerful examples of conservation in action at a time of urgency because of our changing climate. If you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with a colleague.